This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and I'm joined by Laura from AJ Bell. Hi there. This week, we're going to talk about why your inbuilt traits could be damaging your wealth, a new investment strategy you can use to organise your portfolio, why last year was so bad for investment returns, and we'll also look at some data that shows what age you reach certain milestones. Wow, so we've got lots to cover this week. So we're joined by Simon Malika from AJ Bell. Hello. So let's get started down with investment returns last year. Now, it might seem a bit weird that we're covering this two months into the year, but there's a well-respected annual report from Credit Suisse, which has just been released, that's got loads of handy data in it. So Dan, what does it tell us about last year? Yeah, it's really, it is really interesting. I'll give you the bad news first. Um, Classic but, your move. But I, I, I promise you there's some good news here. So, okay. so bear with me. So 2018 was the worst year for returns from global equities since the global financial crisis. So you would have lost 9%. Okay, so that's the bad news. So hopefully, if we've all been investing for a while, we kind of should know that last year was a bit problematic. Um, But the good news is equities is still the best long-run financial investment globally as a head of bonds when you look at inflation-adjusted returns. So you you should expect to get just over 5% um, from equities. So for those who don't know, equities is another word for stocks and shares. Um, But one of the most interesting points I've seen in this report is that since 1950, emerging markets have actually beaten developed markets on the stock market by over just over 1% a year. Now, I guess that sort of implies we do need emerging markets in a diversified portfolio. I think some people might get scared of wanting to put emerging markets in because there are lots of countries that may not be familiar with and they're not really sure about the companies that are active there. Um, so, Laura, I don't know, are you, how do you feel personally about emerging markets? Do you think it's scary or exciting? Uh, yeah, I've got money in emerging markets. It's money that I kind of consider to be locked away for the longer term rather than it being a short term holding because it is riskier. And so I want a longer period to be able to ride out some of those ups and downs. Last year, for example, um, well, actually, the recent years have been quite tricky for emerging markets. Yeah, they have. I mean, emerging markets last year, um, on average, it was a, a minus 14% return. But actually, since since 2000, they've actually outperformed developed markets by 2.4% a year. Um, so really, but, 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 you know, I guess, so China within emerging markets is often seen as like one of the big drivers, but actually investors in Chinese stocks would have only received returns in line with emerging markets and developed markets. Um, so it kind of shows you, you, you need to sort of look beyond China or certainly have a, a broad um, exposure to emerging markets. And, and I guess... Perhaps you want to be letting a fund manager um, who's experienced in this area sort of help to do the hard work um, rather than sort of picking individual shares, unless you're unless you're a very good, experienced investor. Um, but just one more point on this report is that actually the, the authors predict that the margins by which equities are likely to outperform cash in the future might actually be lower than the um, historical premium of 4.2%. Um, so they're kind of looking at about 3.5%. So, so you could still kind of expect shares to potentially outperform cash, um, but just perhaps buy not as much. And last year we saw actually cash was one of the best performing, if not the best performing asset class, because even though you didn't earn much on it, you didn't lose money on it. Yeah. yeah. And so when markets fall like they did last year, 
Um, it's how investors react to those falls that often has a bigger impact on their wealth. So Simon's going to talk us through some of these kind of behavioural traits that can end up damaging your investment returns. Yes. So I think what we're really talking about here is behavioural finance. Um, And if we had to distill that into one sentence, um, I think I'd encourage you to think of it as behavioural finance is the study of psychology behind financial decision making. So what does that really mean? Well, I guess firstly, maybe we need to take a step back further than that and actually think about something called the efficient market hypothesis. So this is more traditional investment theory. And the idea behind this is that markets are efficient. And this really came out from a lot of work that Eugene Farmer did in the 1960s. And as the, I guess, the title of the hypothesis suggests, it actually suggests that markets are efficient, i.e. all information is already readily available in share prices. And it is impossible, or at least very difficult, to outperform on a consistent basis. Now, behavioural finance kind of counter argues this point actually Um, and it says that uh, stocks can be mispriced um, i.e overvalued or undervalued at points in time and it gives the reason for this and the reason for this really is um, the fact that as humans we're not rational Um, and I think the bad news here is that actually um, we are programmed we're hardwired with lots of biases that really doesn't make us very good investors so we are just naturally not good investors Um, so what we need to do is really have proper processes in place Um, if we think about institutional investing and fund managers they have proper processes that they follow that make it more repeatable so that they what they're really trying to do is avoid these biases so I guess when you're um trying to to pick shares a common trait is for you to just copy what everyone else is doing isn't it this this is herd mentality mm-hmm. i mean that that's if you look up behavioral finance people talk about herd mentality a lot um another one might be uh, high self-rating so when when things are going well you kind of think it's, yes this is all to do with my um sort of decision making but when things go wrong you say no it's absolutely nothing to do with me it was someone else's fault and i guess those two sort of factors do affect our financial decisions don't they yeah they absolutely do and we see it time and time again so the behavioural finance official kind of formal group recognise about 100 different biases. Um, now, that's a lot. Um, some of them are quite contradictory. Some of them do overlap. And some, you could argue, aren't really biases. But at the moment, we have about 100 recognised. Um, and, you know, there's some that I think affect us more when we think of investments. Um, and two I'd probably highlight are the overconfidence bias um, and confirmation bias. So the two of these really combined is, is the idea that actually we're overconfident in either our abilities or in what we think our knowledge is um, in a subject. Um, So just a very simple example, and and taking a step back out of investments, um, there's been studies on if we ask the question, um, do you think you're an above average driver? Well, in fact, 93% of people seem to think they're an above average driver. Now, mathematically, we know this isn't possible. Clearly, it has to be 50-50. So that shows us that 43% of people are overconfident. Now, obviously, that's only a sample, but we believe it's a representative sample. Um, The study takes it further to talk about Um, the difference between males and females and I guess the good news for the females is that they're um, less um, impacted by overconfidence but they still are but the male population certainly has more um, of an impact in overconfidence now the issue with something like overconfidence in the investment market is it may lead us to do um, certain things um, that are poor for investment outcomes so for example trading too much so if we're overconfident in our ability to find new good ideas um, and then swap them when they've done well for other good ideas 
ideas. We may trade too much. And we know if we just take behavioral finance out of the equation, we know by just over trading that costs money. And therefore, you need to be even better than the next person to be able to gain a benefit. Um, the other thing it may lead us to is not diversify portfolios properly enough. If we're overconfident, we may end up investing in uh, one risk too much. So have an inherent bias maybe to oil because all the stocks we found that we're overconfident in are all related to oils, but actually um, the oil price. And actually we have um, decided to kind of exclude that from, from our thought process because of that overconfident. Now the confirm overconfirmation bias is an interesting one because what that does in our, in our mind is we decide on our hypothesis or a decision, a conclusion, and then we don't really take the time or the effort to go and research the other side of the argument. So we don't naturally go and seek um, research that disagrees with us. So really what you need to do there is play devil's advocate with yourself. You really need to think, spend, if you've spent three days researching a stock or an idea, spend a day where you just go out and look for the counter arguments. Now, it may be a day that's wasted in some in, in some ways, but I'd argue it's really not. So just look for that counter argument and discuss with yourself, play that devil's advocate point, or, or with a friend if you're both interested in investing, then really one of you needs to talk about the other side of it. Um, it will open your eyes a lot. Yeah, and that's kind of that whole thing of being in a kind of echo chamber or echo bubble, which is usually more related to kind of political views and things like that. But it definitely plays into investing as well, doesn't it? Where you only hear the the things that back up your point of view rather than hearing the potential negatives or potential downsides. But I guess it's quite hard to force yourself to listen to those other aspects as well. And is there an element where if you listen to them too much, then you just end up with decision paralysis where you can't decide whether it's a good good investment or not? I, I guess that is the danger. At the end of the day, you need to come to a conclusion. But all I'm really saying is that you just need to think of every angle. Um, so one of the, um, I guess, the fathers of behavioural finance, Daniel Kamen, wrote a book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And it's a very good read. So I really would um, suggest um, you, you purchase a copy. Um, but he talks about this idea of system one and system two in our minds. So system one is aptly, as, as the book's named, the thinking fast. That's the kind of autopilot. And system two is, is the um, slow thinking. But the problem in our in our brains is that we can't turn off system one. System one has to reflect the decision to system two, um, which comes a problem because if you think system one's the autopilot, so if I was to pose the question of two plus two to you, um, you should answer it for and very quickly without thinking really. Um, if you want to open a door, you don't stand there and go through the logarithmic ideas of how to open a door, you just open the door. Whereas system two would be more about calculating something like 17 times 14. Doesn't come natural, you have to think about the mathematical process to do it. So that is the stuff that really takes the time. So in investing, if we're relying on system one too much, then naturally we're taking shortcuts and we're not considering all the possibilities. Um, so I do think it's quite dangerous in the way we're wired and, and these biases. Is this just something that affects retail investors? Or can we say with confidence that fund managers still suffer these same issues that they don't give a um, think about both sides of the argument um, and there's this sort of fear of missing out if they can see their peer group or say investing in certain stocks they, they want to do the same yeah, that, that, that's a brilliant question. And um, the sad news is for a lot of experts and professionals out there um, that, yes, it, behavioural finance seems to go through um, the retail psyche, but very much so the investment psyche as well, so the experts as well. And if, if we look at a stock like Nintendo, um, if we 
charted, and, and this is a chart that I've seen in a presentation um, presented to me by a Japanese manager showing the behavioral finance aspects of, of the industry, is that actually when we looked at the analysts recommending that stock in the institutional world, what we saw was when the share price was high, there were lots of analysts out there suggesting buy the stock. And then as the share price comes down, and there was very good reason for, for the share price coming down at points clearly, um, but then you just see all the analysts following each other and suddenly there's a load of sell analysts out there. These are the same people that were recommending it maybe a year ago. The company hasn't really changed, but they've all changed um, their, their attitude and outlook to the stock. And they've done this in a herd way as well. So it is definitely rife in the institutional world as well, absolutely. Um, which is why, it's particularly when we go and see fund managers, what we want to hear is a repeatable process. So we want to understand how they take these biases out and what process they follow and how they repeat that process time and time again to give them an advantage over other people that are maybe chasing returns. And we think that's really, really important. The other thing we spend a lot of time talking to people about is really about mistakes. And it's not even necessarily the answer to the mistakes, but it's the body language. What we want to know is that people are really comfortable talking about their mistakes. Now, on average, a fund manager makes about 60% decisions correct. That makes them a good fund manager. Now, that means they're getting 40% of their decisions wrong. Now, if they're not learning from those decisions, that's a real, real shame. And we want to know that people are comfortable talking about their mistakes, but actually also identifying maybe what they've learned from them and where their error really crept in. So, um, you know, we, th we take a lot of time doing that as well. And is there an element where fund managers or funds that are run more by teams or at least have a team behind them helps to kind of smooth out some of these biases because you've got people there to check with your kind of confirmation bias but you've also got more people coming at it from different angles is that something you also look for um i think that's an interesting point um sadly i think the jury's out in terms of whether um, behavioral finance um, affects us more as individuals as teams there's definitely biases that um, are much more focused towards individualism um, like I said the overconfidence but then as Dan pointed out herd bias as well which is actually more about how we go together uh, in unison really um, so I think it's difficult to say that what I would say is if there's a team in place and I definitely want to see things like um, the devil's advocate like the team split in two and counter argue um, and do think it cover all the different bases um, so I think as a team, if you do it correctly, then definitely you can help each other. But there is that issue that even as a team, you can have one powerful voice and actually the others don't get heard. Or, you know, sometimes committee-based decisions, it really depends how the committee's set up as to whether it's effective or not. So it can be very effective, but it needs to be effective for the right reasons. I went to see fund manager Nick Train, Blinzel Train the other day, um, and we were talking just about um, how he works with teams, and they've been, over the last sort of 10 years, recruiting some younger people um, to, to help him and um, another chap that is the sort of lead manager, and he said the first job is for new people is to come in, is to just understand the funds and what they are, but the second and the most important thing to them to do is to to challenge them straight away and he said you know I want them to tell me if I sound like a dinosaur um, or I'm not getting things at all you know and I thought it's quite impressive how he was giving this um, opportunity um, responsibility to you know perhaps very young people in the company um, to be able to push them and I think that's a good thing isn't it really so I think that's absolutely uh, the right way of thinking uh, you know if we take that out of fund managers any manager uh, making sure that they're, they're encouraging the people below them to speak and support them in the right 
way um you know taking the idea of arrogance out of the equation you know you if you're in the investment uh market or any manager indeed just you know not to be arrogant you're going to get the best from your team and that's what you really want to do and as a fund manager i definitely think that's the right way to think about things it also helps in um when we think of succession planning as well because at the end of the day if there's one star manager um he will at a point come to retire now if he hasn't built up a team around him hasn't passed on that knowledge then actually the succession planning isn't, isn't good there and you know that is something that would also concern us um that we want to be able to see um in in most cases doesn't have to be all because obviously you can have unique um investment teams around um, a culture but in most places what you want to see is that that knowledge that process is getting passed on down through down through the different generations <laughs> so that actually um, you know the strong returns that came from investing in a certain way continue in the future so spring feels like it's upon us this week or at least for now so if you're looking at ways to spring clean your investment portfolio Laura and I have been looking at core satellite uh, investment approaches. So, Laura, can you tell us what that means? It sounds magical and like it involves space, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's not quite as exciting, <laughs> sadly. Um, so this is about where you organise your portfolio. So you have a, a core of holdings and investments, and then you have kind of satellite approaches around them. So what does that mean? So um, you can operate it in different ways, but typically your core would be some of your more plain vanilla things. So it would be your broad market exposure to things like UK stock markets or US stock markets or um, maybe even some cash or bonds. And then your satellite positions around it are your more exciting, more interesting, more specific tactical positions. So that could be that you think healthcare is going to do really well and so you'll buy specific healthcare stocks or a fund that invests in healthcare. Um, other examples are having more kind of higher risk things around it. So maybe things like private equity perhaps or some of the kind of emerging markets or even frontier markets that we talked about earlier another way that you can do it is also to have um, the differentiation between active and passive so you could have a passive core so you could have lower cost tracker funds as your core and then have strategic active fund managers that you have kind of dotted around the edge to add to that so i think one way of looking at it is if you if you um your core is the serious stuff and the satellite things are the fun bits. So I would suggest you might want to think about 80% of your portfolio, stick it in the core. And it acts as like a big cushion. So um, if any of those sort of nice, exciting things around the side don't quite work out as planned, um, you've hopefully got something to fall back on. Uh, you've got this nice diversification. Um, and I think with, with the satellite stuff, it does give you um, gives you a chance to sort of perhaps to accelerate the returns from your portfolio, particularly if you're going for some high risk stuff. Um, but I think it's it, it does give you that nice sort of comfort that, again, if something doesn't quite play out, um, it's not the complete end for your wealth. It hasn't all suddenly disappeared there. But I think there's some there is a you know a drawback to that is that some people might think the core stuff is completely safe when actually anything that's invested in the stock market is not guaranteed to be safe. So it's one thing to think about there. I mean, Simon, obviously in your field of talking to fund managers all the time, do people talk about core satellite stuff or is it more um, sort of theory based sort of approach? I think I think they do loosely. Um, it's something we pay definitely a lot of attention to. So whenever we look at a fund. Um we go through the process, but ultimately what we want to come out with is two things really. Is one, an outcome, so a view. So um, we either have a positive, neutral, or negative view on a fund. And the second really is characterizing it, so how that fund should behave. And one of the ways we do that is by 
investment type and that's very much core or satellite so we put that kind of label to a fund um, and that helps us um, understand the expectations from that fund in future so the future return expectations so we do it in other ways as well so we have investment style so value growth um, so we think about how we characterize it so that we can manage the expectations of fund returns in the future so that if the fund returns have been very much driven or sorry the market return has been very much driven by valuation um, or the value style, then we know our growth style. Our growth style funds may have struggled, and it's very much that as opposed to the skill of the manager um, that hasn't done its job. So I do think it's very important to characterise things and bucket things um, as much as you can. Obviously, the danger with that is you have to bucket them correctly; um, otherwise, you may be um, misinforming yourself. So I think long long term in the core, short term in the in the satellite is one way someone might want to look at it, but. I guess if it's short term, there's the risk of overtrading. Um, don't forget all the costs add up. Um, but yeah, it, it, I think it, it, it is a nice way to sort of split your split your portfolio and split your thinking, isn't it? So it's um, have a, a bit more formulaic approach to what you're trying to do with your investments. I, I think that's a great point. I think that formula, and that kind of ties back into behavioural finance, really, is that there is... Um, a multitude of different type of investment asset classes, different type of fund managers. There is so much out there that you could get very confused if you're just trying to bolt a portfolio together through random ideas. So I think taking a formulaic approach, trying to characterise things, building a portfolio with a holistic view is extremely important. Um, if you don't do it that way, then I think one of the main dangers are is that you don't understand your risks within a portfolio. So there can be big inherent risks that you just haven't considered because you've just bolted random investment ideas together. So I think having a formulaic approach, um, an investable process which can be repeatable is one of the most powerful things, I think, yes. And we talked a bit about kind of spring cleaning your portfolio. And while obviously that seems slightly preemptive in uh, February, that's actually, I think, a useful tool to do you can become a kind of acquirer of funds or assets and actually if you set aside a point maybe it's the new start of the new tax year where you actually sit down and look at your investment portfolio and think are all of these funds working for me are they working in the way that they should be doing but also why did I buy these and do I still need to be owning them then I think that that is a good Way so, of operating. so in some ways, what, what law is explaining there is loss aversion. So we don't like um, to take out, um, so as humans, we don't like to take out, um, we don't like to crystallise those losses. Um, we're very much very happy to crystallise again very quickly, but it takes us longer to crystallise that loss. Um, the utility function from a mathematical point of view is about two and a half times more powerful. Um, so for example, if um, I wanted to enter into a game with you and I had a coin that I was going to toss and I offered you £100 if it was heads but £100 you'd have to pay me if it was tails actually you're unlikely to take that bet it has to be increased to about 200 or 250 for you to become actually um, interested in that so yes yeah, so people don't like to take those losses but actually what people have to realize um, is that you know obviously from a taxation point of view if it's outside of um, of a tax um, wrapper um, from a taxation point of view of course there is a benefit to um, taking losses um, because you can offset them from your gains um, so I do think it's something that people really need to do really need to think about and what I would suggest 
suggest is that when you come to think about um, fu funds or stocks that are possibly um, in the red, is actually don't ask yourself whether you should be selling them, is ask yourself whether you should buy them today. Because if you wouldn't be willing to buy them today, then I think that's a very clear conclusion as to the rationale behind why you'd continue to hold them. And I don't, you know, I don't, I think you'd very quickly come to the idea that perhaps you shouldn't be holding this stock. But it's something we are all very guilty of. I've been very guilty of it in the past. But I do think we need to look at it from a slightly different point. And I would suggest you, you ask yourself, would you be buying it today? Yeah, that's a really good test. I feel like I need to apply that to my own investment portfolio. It's easy to sit here and say that, isn't yeah. it? But actually now I'm thinking about some things that I definitely should have sold. <laughs> <laughs> so just before we go, there's some interesting figures that were released last week on the age that you hit certain milestones. And I found this fascinating. So it compares it to how it changed over the past few decades. So some aren't that surprising. So people are generally older when they hit full-time employment, but that's because more people are going to university than 20 years ago. So that seems fairly logical. Um, but this is what I found interesting. 20-odd years ago, 18 to 34-year-olds, which are often lumped into that kind of millennial bucket, um, were most likely to be in a couple with at least one child. But now a third of them are living at home with parents. Wow. So it's quite a stark difference. And in 1979, 94% of all 34-year-old women had got married, but now it's only 51%. Mm -hmm. So the kind of age that you're hitting certain milestones, particularly things like buying a property, um, getting married, having kids is eking out later in life. Does that mean that if you're these big milestone sort of... Um, financial requirements in your life if they're getting later and later then actually that's perhaps not too good for your pension then is it because if you're thinking well i'll just buy my house first and then i'll just pay for my, my kids education then i'll get around to topping up my pension but actually if you're pushing out it kind of well, kind of means you have to work for longer doesn't it so which yeah. is what's happening anyway in life, yeah and so. i think the kind of financial commitments is one of the reasons people peg to why people are doing these things later so you come out of university with more debt which we've talked about in recent um weeks which means you stay living with parents for longer because property price are more expensive so you can't afford to move out which also means you delay getting married and having kids so you're right everything kind of gets stretched further out and pensions are probably far from people's minds at that point mm. well thanks ever so much for listening this week we always want to hear what ideas you want us to talk about on the podcast so please do email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk thank you very much see you next week goodbye bye before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. The podcast talks about various money issues. Just don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. You should also recognise that how an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future and that tax rules apply. Music